Today's scripture reading will come from the epistle of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Truly an honor uh, to be here. I've had uh, associations, I guess, with, with the church here since back when Pastor Kim was your pastor, um, probably almost 15 years ago or so. And, uh, and so it's, it's been great to see the growth and the change and all that God has been doing in and through you. And as you all have talked about how we've partnered together, it's, uh, it's just an honor to realize you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We may uh, meet in different facilities, but we have the same Lord. And uh, to be able to be here and to, to speak to you today and share from God's Word is uh, truly an honor. Uh, a few years, well, boy, it's been longer than a few years. Uh, probably about uh, 35 years or so ago, I was uh, a guest speaker in another church. I was uh, in seminary, and the pastor of that church was a seminary classmate of mine. And he was a, a man who kind of flew by the seat of his pants. And so uh, he invited me to come speak. He didn't bother to ask me what I was going to speak on. He just said, I just come. Our people want to hear from you. And uh, so as he introduced me to speak, he said, you know, I want to introduce you, uh, Pastor Tory Robinson. And uh, he said, I want you to listen carefully to what he has to say, because whatever he uh, is speaking to you is probably a problem that he's dealing with in his own life. <laughs> Now, I thought about that. I thought, boy, I'm glad that I'm not speaking about adultery or, uh, you know, there are a lot, of, a lot of topics that that would have been a horrible introduction to. But as, I've, as I thought back about that bad introduction, I realized that it probably would be appropriate for, uh, for today's message because one of the things that I learned years ago, and that is that um, all of us, every single one of us, is either in the middle of a struggle about to head into a struggle or coming out of a struggle. I had a, a mentor pastor of mine tell me years ago, he said, if you speak to people in pain, you'll never lack for an audience. So I know as I speak to you, some of you are just struggling to get by today. I, I know that as a pastor. I know some of you are, are celebrating and that's the way it should be. And others of you are... Uh, <laughs> doing okay, but you realize that this could happen at any time. So the, the message we're going to look at from James is one that I am absolutely certain has relevance to each of us. Uh, let me just uh, give this time to God. I know we just prayed, but I want to uh, leave it before the Lord. Lord, I pray that um, you would get past me to these dear folks, and I pray that uh, you would get, speak to them, encourage them, challenge them, Build them up because of the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you think in the history of uh, biblical times and just the history of man, there's probably been no group that has been more persecuted than the Jewish people. Uh, just in our own times, we're very much aware of the details of the Holocaust and and all that took place as uh, Nazi Germany under Hitler uh, sought to oppress 
and uh, persecute and, and exterminate a whole race of people. Well, if you know what the Jewish people have gone through, I want to tell you the story of another group of people. They were Jews. They predated the Jews of Nazi Germany. In fact, they predated uh, uh, basically the last 20, 20 centuries because they were Jews who lived in the Middle East back at the time that the Bible was written. Their pastor was writing to them, and they were a particular group that struggled because they were not only Jews, they were Christians. They were people who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And because of that, they, uh, pers- they were persecuted not only because they were Jewish, but they were persecuted by their Jewish countrymen because they believed that they had uh, left the faith. And so these people were doubly uh, struggling And their pastor is none other than the writer of this book, James. And if you know the history of the church in Jerusalem, you know that that, uh, at the time of the Apostle Paul, a persecution broke out in uh, in Jerusalem. And because of that, the the Jews who were in Jerusalem were scattered uh, throughout the world. And James writes to these people, these Jewish Christians who are now living outside of Jerusalem. And he's aware that because of their faith, they were uh, blackballed, they were uh, hated, they were dealt with unfairly, and he understood the pain that they were going through. Now, I tell you that not only because that's how this book begins. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's speaking about these Jewish Christians who, because of the persecution, have been, uh, been scattered. So I want you to play uh, I'm the pastor for just a moment. And imagine that one of these Jewish believers comes to you for advice. And they explain to you how in their family they have been uh, ostracized in their community. How the Gentiles don't trust them because they're Jewish and the Jews don't trust them because they've embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And so consequently, their, their friendships are few and they suffer as a result. Imagine that uh, your whole family is, that their whole family is struggling and they come to you as the pastor and they say, what, what can you tell me to help me deal with these, these trials that I'm facing? Well, as a pastor myself, I think, well, there are a lot of things you could say to them. Uh, You might tell them, for example, um, you might say, I want you just to uh, be patient. Just hang in there because this will pass and eventually you'll get through it. God is faithful. Just be patient. That's not bad advice. In fact, later on in this same book, James will talk about being patient. So it's, it's biblical advice. But that's not where he begins. Or you might say, you know what you should do? You know you're, you're struggling. And you know that God understands your struggles. So just bring them to him in prayer. Ask for his help. He'll help you get through. 
Again, later on in the book, he's going to talk about prayer and the effectual prayer of a righteous person, but that's not how he starts out his advice as this person comes in to speak to him. You could say something like, um, you know, you need to have fellowship with some other believers. You need to be encouraged by them, get into small groups. And again, later in the book, he talks about uh, how helpful it can be to confess your sins to one another and support each other. So that, too, is biblical advice. But that's not what James tells them as he begins this book. Instead, he says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that counsel from Pastor James, I think, that sounds rather cruel to me. I mean, have you ever been in one of those places in your life where you are just, you are just in so much pain? And, and you, you share your pain with someone, and you, what you want is for someone to commiserate with you, to cry with you, to tell you they understand your struggles. I have no doubt, if James was the pastor of these scattered people, that he himself has faced plenty. As the one who stayed back in Jerusalem, he would have faced his own share of persecution. So he's not insensitive to their needs. But what he tells them to do is to consider it pure joy. Now, if you're struggling today, and I just come up to you, especially if you don't know me very well, and I say, you know, you can rejoice in this. It it sounds almost masochistic, almost cruel. (laughs) My, My baby just died. I'm supposed to rejoice in this? I just lost my job, and I I don't know where we're going to get the money to pay all of our bills. How can I rejoice in that? How can I consider that joy? If you're in the middle of a trial, the advice that James gives may seem like cruel advice at first. But understand that what he says to us and to these people in verse 2 is not the whole advice. Notice he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the reason we rejoice is not that we're supposed to enjoy pain or suffering. It's not that we're the kind of people who like to be tied to a tree and beaten. That, that, that's sick. But it's because of what he's going to say. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, what James wants them to know, wants us to know, is we can be joyful even in the hardest and most difficult times of our lives because God is working out His good purposes for you and for me. He he uses... uh, a couple different terms that are worth noting. Depending on the translation you have, he talks about um, that you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Some translations say steadfastness. Some say patience. I like the word perseverance personally, though they're all fine, but perseverance suggests an active approach 
to dealing with trials. In other words, I don't, I don't just passively just wait and grin and bear it. I actively enter in and, and recognize that, that some good can come out of this. Perseverance is, is the kind of thing you think about when you see somebody who's in a marathon. And they run, and even after 20, 20 miles, they know that the, the, the race isn't quite done. There's still a few more to go. And they persevere, and they press on because they want to get to that goal. That's the idea behind this word. And if you're in the middle of struggles today or the next time you're in those struggles, it's, this is not a passive word. Just, just wait till it goes past. It's entering into it, realizing that some good can come out of this. So what is that? Well, he says, um, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I had slides today, the picture of, uh, of maturity might be the picture of somebody graduating from high school or college. Because it's, it's a picture of somebody who has completed the course of study. Somebody who's finished all of their preparation and now they're ready to move on. It's, it's not unusual. I do poorly with these things, but I'll get it on here and we'll not be distracted. Uh, it, it's not unlike the maturity we see in, in, in children. My wife and I were blessed just within the last month to have our first grandchild. And uh, little Hudson lives with, with my son and daughter-in-law in, in Minnesota. And I remember when I was holding my, my son, my, my grandson, thinking, he doesn't do very much. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't talk. He didn't even uh, cry very much, for which we're all thankful. But he just, just kind of lays there and only lets us know when he needs to get something to drink or needs his diaper changed. And I realized this little baby is... It's hard to imagine what he's going to be like when he's grown up. But that's, that's maturity in our lives. We, wherever you are in your life, God has a plan to grow you up to become fully who he wants you to be. That's maturity. And trials are part of what it takes to make you all that God wants you to be. It is the course of study that's required for your graduation to be the person God wants you to be as, as his saint. So, he says, persevere. Just like you would persevere in the course of your studies so you could get the degree. Persevere in the midst of your pain so that you can benefit from that pain. You know, it's possible, I tell people this all the time as a pastor, that just because you're facing trials doesn't mean you're going to benefit from them. That whether you benefit from them is largely up to you. I've seen people in the midst of their trials become very bitter and angry with God. <laughs> that's not persevering. That's, that's getting angry. That's becoming rebellious. But people who persevere seeing that God wouldn't allow something in their lives except to make them all that God wants them to be are able to to push forward, to move towards graduation. The second word that he uses, you may be mature and complete. The picture I would put up on the screen of complete is maybe the picture of either a, a priest 
or uh, a lamb for sacrifice. You, you know, if you know the Old Testament, that to be, um, to be a priest to serve in, in the temple, you had to be qualified. You had to be spiritually pure and ready to serve. Likewise, for an animal for sacrifice had to be without blemish. The idea here is that as you go through struggles and trials, God uses them in your life to purify you, to make you better at being the person he wants you to be. That's the picture of of completion that's involved here. And then finally, the the third word that he used is uh, that you may be pure and complete and not lacking anything. That picture, if I were putting one up, would be a picture of a, of a bullseye. It's, it's the target. It's, it's reaching the goal. Or it's the finish line in the race so that you can get where you want to be. More importantly, so that you can get where God wants you to be. Back um, some years ago, I was at a retreat that was led by a Christian psychologist. And as he was talking to us, he, he too was talking about trials And he made a statement that stuck with me, a statement that I've used many times, because really I think it's much of what James is saying here, only in perhaps uh, just different language. He said, maturity comes about in the passing of time and in the presence of trials or the presence of pain. I found that helpful because it's really what James is saying. He's saying, you can be joyful. You can rejoice even in the hard times in your life. Because maturity really only comes about over time and with struggle. I wish it came a different way, but at least in my life, the easier my life is, the more tempted I am to just kind of relax and to chill and to not push forward. Now, granted, I think God likes for us to move forward without pain. But I can tell you in my life that some of the greatest periods of growth have come when I've struggled the most. So, as you think about this, uh, this instruction from James, you realize that this is a pattern that is consistent throughout Scripture, throughout history, in each of our lives. You can just about pick your saint or your uh, uh, patriarch or the uh, hero of Scripture, and you'll find that this pattern works out, that growth comes in the passage of time and the presence of struggle. Think of, of Abraham. Abraham in the Old Testament, this this father of faith. Remember God called Abraham when he was 75 years old and he he, uh, promised him that he would make from him a great nation. Uh, Abraham is such a a great man that he is uh, revered by the Jews as well as by Christians as well as by Muslims. But when you look closely at the story of Abraham, his is a story of perseverance and struggle. You remember how he and his father and his family left Ur of the Chaldees. They went to a place called Haran. 
And it was there in Haran that God got hold of Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants. But when Abraham left um, Haran to go into the promised land, he, he had to go to a place he'd never been before. It wasn't just like going over to New Jersey or to Connecticut. It was, it was like going to, to Ghana or to some faraway place that you're just not comfortable with. But he did it in response to God. And when he uh, got there into the promised land, the first thing that happened was there was a famine in the land. And so to try to survive, they left the promised land, went down to Egypt. And you remember what happened down in Egypt? There, the Pharaoh saw Abraham and his 65-year-old bride, who apparently was still um, an attractive woman in her, uh, her senior years, and, uh, and Abraham got, uh, got scared. He thought, if the Pharaoh wants my wife, he doesn't need me. So he told Sarah to, to lie for him and, and to, to just say, she's my, uh, she's my sister, not my wife. That was a half-truth, but she was his wife. And, and the Pharaoh was very taken by Sarah. And you probably know the story, but the bottom line was God had to intervene because here this promise that God had made to Abraham that he would bless him required that just he and Sarah were uh, an item, not the Pharaoh. So they left Egypt and they went back into the land and another 13 years goes by and uh, Abraham has gotten older and the promise hasn't come true. And he begins to think, well, God's, God's not going to answer this. And so instead of trusting God, he tries another way around. And at Sarah's encouragement, he tries to have a, a child through her handmaiden, Hagar. <laughs> and if you know the story, nothing good came out of that. Uh, Ishmael came out of that, which was, uh, uh, ended up creating some friction for, for all of history, I suppose. But it also created friction between uh, Hagar and Sarah. And more time passes, and Abraham realizes that, that it is through Sarah that he's supposed to have this, this child. And uh, it's about 13 more years, and he runs into a king by the name of Abimelech. And when he sees Abimelech, Abimelech is also taken by Sarah. And so Abraham falls back on an old lie. And he said, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. It's been almost 25 years. And Abraham is still struggling with the same sin. It's, it's been nearly a quarter of a century. And he still doesn't seem to have learned the lesson. What's wrong with Abraham? He was human. <laughs> it was not until about a year later that Abraham realized that God was true to his word and that this child would come by Sarah and by him just as God had promised. Abraham had to learn that lesson that, that growth and maturity only comes about 
by the passing of time and the presence of struggle, the presence of pain. Take Joseph. Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, yet I think sometimes we give him too much credit at the outset. You remember how he was the, the favorite of his dad, and because he was the favorite of his dad, he was very much hated by his brothers. My suspicions are, this is just my reading of the text, I think Joseph was a bit of a brat when he was little. I say that because you remember the story how when he uh, had this dream that God gave him about how the, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down before him. You remember who he told it to? <laughs> His brothers. I think he was saying, kind of sticking it to him and saying, I think I had this dream from God and basically it affirmed everything that I think is good about me and subservient about you. Well, whether that... <laughs> interpretation is exactly right. It is obvious that Joseph's brothers wanted him dead. So when he went out to find them when they were off in the far lands uh, doing shepherding, they had a plan to kill him. But in God's timing, he made it possible so that, that instead of killing them, they were able to sell him into slavery to some... Uh, a caravan that came by. Now, if you know the story, you know that this was God's plan all along because God was carrying out his promise to Abraham and Joseph was in the seed of Abraham and this family was in the seed of Abraham. And for God to protect the family, he had to get Joseph out of Canaan and take him to Egypt again. And there in Egypt... Joseph went from being a slave to ultimately being second in command of all of Egypt. But if you read the story of Joseph carefully, you discover being a slave was not easy. He was faithful to God. He refused to be unfaithful to his master Potiphar. And all that did was it got him thrown in prison. And in Psalm, I think it's 105, it says that Joseph was in prison with uh, chains around his, his ankles and his arms. It was not an easy thing for Joseph. And all the time, he was separated from his family, and all the time he must have thought, what's going on here? But God was working out a plan that Joseph was unaware of because Joseph was able to tell Pharaoh about a dream that he had, that there would be this horrendous time of famine, but it would be preceded by a great time of prosperity. And so Joseph was able to prepare uh, the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was able to prepare Egypt for this prosperity so they could save up. And because they saved, Joseph's family ended up having to come to Egypt to be spared from the famine. If God hadn't allowed Joseph to go there, his family would never have been spared. The point is, at the end of his life, if you remember his brothers are expecting that Joseph's going to have their head. But you remember the great line that Joseph has at the end of, of, of Genesis. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph couldn't see that when 
his brothers wanted to kill him. He couldn't see it when they first sold him into slavery. He couldn't see it when he was held in prison. But at the end, he got there and he realized God was working out a plan. And so he could look back and see what he didn't see at the beginning. And he could see the sort of thing that James is saying, that God has a good plan. And so in faith, you can be joyful because if God is allowing you to struggle, if you are suffering now, remember that growth and maturity only come about in the presence of pain and the passing of time. It's throughout the Bible. I'll just give you one other example. I think of Naomi in the book of Ruth. You remember that story when uh, she and her husband go to the land of Moab? She's got two sons and a husband, and things aren't all that good in, in Bethlehem. That's why they leave in the first place. And they go to Moab, probably not in faith, but just in desperation. And there, her sons marry two women from Moab, But tragically, both sons and Naomi's husband die. And so so now, Naomi is in desperate straits. As a woman trying to make ends meet, as a woman trying to survive in a culture that was uh, provided for by men, what was going to happen to her? At the end of chapter 1 in the book of, of Ruth, you discover that that uh, Naomi returns to Bethlehem where she had once lived. And she is angry and she is bitter. In fact, her name, Naomi, means sweet. And she said, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. (laughs) James could have said, wait a minute, Naomi, you don't understand. You still are sweet. She wasn't listening to that. She said, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. His hand is against me. Remember, she said, I I went out full and I've come back empty. But as she said that, standing beside her was this Moabite woman by the name of Ruth, who we're going to discover was the, the very means that God used to provide not only for Naomi, but actually the means that God used to propel his whole plan of history Forward because this woman would ultimately marry into the line of Boaz and be part of the line of David and ultimately the line of the Messiah. <laughs> and yet Naomi is just so frustrated and so bitter. And even at the end of the book, when you get there, things have changed for Naomi. She doesn't ever know exactly the, the cosmic significance of her story. But she does know that God has taken her from this place of bereavement to a place where she's holding a baby son. And we know that that son was the grandfather of of David in the, the line of Jesus. Everywhere you look in the Bible, everywhere you look, you see that growth, maturity, come about with the passing of time and the presence of struggle. So you know that the testing of your faith 
produces perseverance, and that perseverance has to do its work so that you can be mature and complete, fully not lacking in anything. Sigmund Freud is considered, I guess, the father of psychoanalysis, but in uh, his practices, he was a frustrated man because he, he had learned some things, but he didn't see much in the way of long-term results. It was later psychiatrists and psychologists who, who developed an understanding of what they called working through. That is, that it's not just dealing with the struggles, but working through them, growing through them. Basically, they learned what James had said years before. M. Scott Peck, in his book, The Road Less Traveled, he, he too is a, a psychologist, and, and uh, he wrote a book about how you can deal with pain in your life. And he said that um, it was uh, Benjamin Franklin who says, that which instructs teaches. So he said, people who are wise will learn not just to welcome problems, but even to welcome the pain of problems. Peck was simply echoing what James had already told us. A lesson that if you've lived long enough, you've seen it to be true in your life. And, and even if you're in the midst of pain now, if you recognize that this is how God works, it can help you to step back from your pain and your problems and say, okay, God, in faith, I'm going to trust you. In faith, I'm going to trust that you have a good purpose in this. In faith, I'm going to see what you can do through this. I've lived long enough that I've got stories of my own to tell. I, I could tell plenty from 22 years here in Terrytown, but I don't want to get anybody in my, in my church in trouble. So I'll just tell you about the first church that I was, uh, I was senior pastor of. It was a church back in Wisconsin. It was a church of about 100 people. And I remember our first Sunday there was an Easter Sunday. And as a a uh, young pastor in my 20s, I had this, this perspective that this church had not seen anything until I stepped into the pulpit. Uh, I had a lot to learn. In fact, within two months of my arriving at that church, the, the chairman of the Christian Education Board and the chairman of the Deacon Board resigned and they both had large families, so that meant that 12 people out of a church of 100 were gone two months after I was there, not to mention the fact that they were leaders. This was all in the works before I got there because they had ambitions to have a church school, and uh, it wasn't something the rest of the church wanted to do. And so when uh, the church decided not to have the school, they left. But I'll tell you, it was not the direction I expected this church to go in when I, I first got there. And over the course of, um, of that first year, it was, it was a slow go. It wasn't growing anywhere near the rate that I expected it to. In fact, about a year into it, uh, one deacon in the church 
uh, left and moved to Arizona, and somebody else who'd been traveling like 12 miles to church said it was too far to travel, so they quit coming. And there were at least one other person who left. This church was going the wrong direction. And we saw some good things happen. The next Easter, we had a baptism, and there were a number of people that got baptized. But I realized that at about a year and a half into that ministry, about a quarter of the people who were in that church when I got there had left. It was so demoralizing. I don't know if you can relate to this if, if you're not a pastor, but I know that if you love this church, when there's a family who's, who's part of it and they leave, you grieve about that. But when you're the pastor of the church, you feel somehow responsible for it. I, I know that's not necessarily the case, but it's hard to get away from it. And so in the midst of all this, about... Uh, Somewhere around two years into it, I don't remember exactly, I got a call from the new chairman of our leadership board, and he said, I want to come by your house and give you something. Well, somehow, by the tone of his voice, I knew he wasn't coming by to give me a gift, but I wondered what it was. I had no clue. He showed up on my doorstep and handed me a letter I had no idea what was in the letter. I opened the letter. It was his letter of resignation. He was leaving leadership. He was leaving the church. That was like the lowest point for me in that church. And I was beginning to think, will I ever accomplish anything for God? Now, I served in that church for eight years. And over the course of that eight years, I realized that those initial struggles, as painful as they were, had a lot of good in them. I realized that there was a, a, a naive pride, a, a, an immature, immaturity in me that had to be uh, worked out. I realized that I was relying on my strength and my gifts and not trusting nearly enough in God. And I realized that I needed the other people in the church desperately, and, and God caused us to rally together. It wasn't a, a solution that had you know, that everything worked out roses, but I realize as I look back on that, I'm a better pastor today, more importantly, I'm a better Christian today because of the struggles so long ago. My point in telling you all that is not to discourage you about what a poor pastor I am. It's to let you know that we all face struggles. Every single one of us, because God has things to teach us that we're only going to learn in the pain. So consider it joy. Rejoice. If you're struggling today, not because you like pain, but because you have a God who is good, a God who loves you, a God who has a plan for you, a God who wants only for you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the struggles. Persevere in the pain. Because growth and maturity 
only come about in the presence of struggle and the passing of time. Amen.